Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I am your usual voice, Pietro Bordletto, and I'm joined by other usual voices, uh, Molly Cornfield, Blake Evans, and uh, Daylon DJ James. How are you guys? I am sad that we have waited this long to call Daylon DJ, but it's happening, and it's great to see you all. ASRM's coming up a couple of weeks. Pretty awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I've been yep. told that there's going to be a signature booth where people will be taking photos and autographs with their favorite podcasters. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the line's going to be pretty short on yours, but, but yes, you're right. Plan accordingly for that. Yeah. They're going to be there for DJ, for sure. You know, it took a while because it involved and demanded so much creativity. Good show, fellas. Well done. <laughs> DJ Tanner is going to have a line out the door from the Full House fans. They're going to be really disappointed. <laughs> Right, enough of making fun of Dale on. We could do that for a whole hour, but we we got some science to talk about. Let me tell you about a cool paper that was at FNS Reports recently on kind of a non-traditional topic. Let me start off by just polling the audience. I, I didn't know these answers, and I don't expect you guys to know these answers. How many people worldwide have HIV? Any guesses? 50 million. Price is right, rules. You're over. The number is actually 37. 37 million people living with HIV worldwide about 50% of them are women. I also didn't know that there are about three and a half million new cases each year worldwide. So it's a problem that's slowed, but not really slowing in dramatic fashion. But luckily, death from AIDS-related illnesses in the era of antiretroviral therapy is increasingly rare. And over 90% of people living with HIV have negative viral loads when they're on these medications. So we've really entered an era where People can expect to live long, productive lives with HIV and should also expect to be able to reproduce in safe ways, but also sometimes requiring our assistance as REs and the opportunity to do that safely. Unfortunately, there's actually only a handful of studies that have looked at ART outcomes in couples living with HIV, where either both of them have HIV or there's serodiscordance on the male or female side. Some studies have found that there are lower rates of clinical pregnancy and live birth in HIV discordant couples, whereas other studies have found no difference. Several papers comment on the risk of bias with some of these studies, the small numbers, and just regional differences with how HIV care is kind of delivered. One of the questions I had for Molly and Blake, since you're kind of on the front lines clinically, do your centers care for couples with HIV? And if so, are there kind of parameters for how you care for them or when you care for them? Yeah, we do care for patients with HIV. And I think within our lab, there's different handling of the embryos and the oocytes uh, in terms of where they're stored and, and how they're handled in the lab. But I'm not aware of other considerations. Yeah, we typically, if the viral load is negative or non-detectable, then we don't have an issue doing them for our lab protocols at our center. But the embryos are stored off-site. If someone has active infection, then that's something that we typically refer them elsewhere. I know there's actually, uh, I can't I can't remember the website's name. I've got it stored away on my desktop, but there is a site that has SART clinics who do offer those specific services, and we refer them to there. It's a 
kind of a tricky issue because it doesn't happen a whole lot in our clinics. And when it does, it's like, oh, what did we do last time? Or who took care of that patient last right. time? Right. I actually did a study when I was a resident that was a secret shopper study where we called around to the, I think it was the top 10 or 15 states that had the highest prevalence of HIV in the U.S., and cold called some of these REI clinics pretending to be a serodiscordant couple, but then also separately pretending to be a doctor and wanting to refer a patient who has HIV, just to kind of get a sense of like, what does the access look like? And it was actually pretty abysmal. Most clinics could not definitively say that they did offer care for HIV. And the ASRM standard is that if you don't offer care, can't offer care at your center, you need to be able to refer them to someone that can. In most clinics, couldn't give you the name of someone that could definitively do it. It's a really cool study. It was by um, Ashley Leach's first author. I was second author on it and kind of a non-traditional methodology. But for me, opened my eyes to, hey, there's there's a problem here with access, which is why this probably this study came from France. This was a French study that we published in FNS reports that looked at five years of their experience caring for HIV positive individuals or couples and matched them to controls. Um, these were matched on a lot of different parameters, thoughtfully done, age of the female partner, INSEM versus ICSI, the etiology of infertility, number of previous cycles, and BMI. And the cases here were couples that either both had HIV or there was serodiscordance. And in France, the criteria for being able to take care of these patients were the following. One, they wanted to make sure that they were healthy. So CD4 counts above 200 as a prerequisite. Two, they needed to have two successful HIV viral loads that showed an undetectable level within three months for couples that were um, HIV positive. And for couples where there was serodiscordance, they needed a negative HIV serology test within two weeks of starting an IVF cycle. And interestingly, none of the couples in who there was a non-HIV positive partner, none of them were on PrEP during their IVF cycle, which I think may be regional difference, or maybe just this was a study that was done in the mid-2000s, and they're just reporting on it now, and a lot of practices changed and the utility of PrEP and safety of PrEP during reproduction. But that's how they did it in France. And what they did is when these couples came in for IVF, they performed sperm PrEP using kind of our traditional density gradient method, and they froze a sample prior to their IVF start. And on that sample, they performed testing of the seminal plasma for the presence or absence of viral particles. If viral particles were identified, but were less than 100,000 copies per ml, they then performed HIV ribonucleic acid testing. And only if they found HIV ribonucleic acid detected would they destroy the sperm sample and not use it for IVF. In all other instances, they thought it was safe for IVF, either with insemination or ICSI. The rest of the IVF was kind of exactly how we performed it. Pick your protocol, IVF or ICSI, uh, as indicated, day three versus day five or six transfers. But in total, they had a total of 179 cycles and were able to match it to 179 control cycles. Now, these 179, right around 100 were serodiscordant couples in where the woman was HIV positive and 60 in which the man was HIV positive. Only 22 were couples where both were HIV positive. And what do they find? Well, the kind of the top line statement here is that the cumulative rates of clinical pregnancy and live birth were in lower among couples with HIV kind of consistent with some of the data that's existed in the literature where there's the outcomes are a little bit different. But specifically, if you drill down into the cycle, what do they find? They found that they required higher starting doses of gonadotropins, consumed more gonadotropins over the course of the stim. Stims were longer, and the endometrial thicknesses that they achieved were lower compared to the control groups. 
And then once the eggs got into the lab, fart rate was lower, cleavage rate was lower, and the number of the average number of good quality embryos was lower in this HIV group. Now, if we broke up this catch-all group of you have HIV or someone in your couple has HIV positive and just drilled down to the HIV positive females, well, kind of the exact same thing. They did worse compared to controls. The only group that actually did the same, no different, was the group where only the man was HIV positive. So the big takeaway here is if a man has HIV, but the woman does not, outcomes are about the same as their controls. If the woman has HIV in the couple and the man does not, then their outcomes are kind of uniformly worse. And the question you may be asking yourself is why? There's a bunch of potential theories. One of them is that we think the antiretroviral therapy that these couples may be on for their HIV treatment may not be great for mitochondria. And if it's not great for mitochondria, it's not gonna be great for eggs, egg quality, more reactive oxygen species and kind of just beating up the ovary a little bit sooner and potentially a bit more aggressively than the controls were not obviously on antiretroviral therapy. Second theory is just, this is all inflammation, inflammation from the, the disease that is HIV and the systemic inflammation that beats up ovaries, beats up sperm, beats up the endometrium in the same way a lot of other inflammatory conditions do. And then finally, there's a bunch of data, like single papers, animal studies, some hypothesis generation that's looked at, is this all lipid metabolism that's messed up? Is this follicular genesis that's messed up? Is this a bigger metabolic issue that's also happening simultaneously along with the HIV infection? But the takeaway here is that if you have an HIV positive woman in front of you, you probably want to include in your counseling that their outcomes are not going to be as good as the typical non-HIV positive age match control doesn't mean they don't get pregnant or can't get pregnant, but it allows you maybe to at least temper your expectations on potential cycle success, knowing their HIV status. Molly, Blake, questions for you when you have HIV positive couples, and I'll be the first one to admit it. I historically haven't told them that I'm expecting their outcomes to be worse because of HIV and leave my hands saying, we don't know why, but it's just worse. But after reading this paper, I kind of feel like I'm going to add the asterisks to my counseling and say, you know, there's some data that suggests that this may not go as well for you as someone who doesn't have HIV, but not dramatically worse. Has that kind of been your guys' experience in counseling? Yeah, I mean, I'll admit too, I have these patients come through so infrequently to where I don't have a routine of how I counsel them, so to speak. They come through just not very often, but certainly is going to be something that I bring up now. But it's certainly very important information to know and definitely something I'll keep in my counseling presentation when I talk to them. Yeah, my number of patients is more limited uh, because I'm so early in my practice, but I absolutely would change my counseling. And I like to tell patients I'm expecting one or two or two or three cycles up front so they can kind of set expectations financially plan because we don't have mandated coverage in Oregon. And so I definitely would add a cycle or two when I'm doing that counseling. The other thing I was thinking about is being a little bit more... Um, we're all pretty obsessive about all of the factors we can control, but you might be more diligent about making sure, hey, there's no hydrosalpinges that might be there because there might be some concomitant pelvic infections and just really optimizing even more so than we always do to give them the best outcome. Listen, I'm counseling nobody, but just circling back to the potential reasoning here, Molly, you just mentioned the inflammatory disease there. The same things that put you at increased risk of HIV, namely IV drug use and sex work and sexually transmitted disease associated with that, aren't they also bad for ovarian reserve? So I don't think this is a huge surprise that, yeah, the male, also the, the low numbers on the male, I wouldn't rule that out entirely. 
But uh, my intuition tells me that it totally makes sense. I mean, these are people whose life experiences presumably may may not bin them as your typical IVF patient. But again, I'm counseling nobody probably for the best. The authors acknowledge that, that there's some comorbid conditions that go along with HIV that are infertility adjacent, like just more exposure to other STIs and the associated PID, tubal factor infertility from that, for sure. So you're you're exactly right, Dalon. And then just also comorbid and co-infection, Hep B, Hep C, syphilis, kind of co-occurring with some of these diseases and what their impact on future fertility and IVF outcomes is. Yes, we should note, by the way, I did read the article. I don't know about you guys. And you made it to the discussion section, so I'm proud of you. I made it all the way. Well, I was I, I got drawn in deep. But yeah, you mentioned it, and, and a lot of these patients uh, were positive for hepatitis B and C. So, I mean, that may have had an influence too. I agree. There's a lot of confounders here. I think it doesn't tell the whole picture. And I, I think we might be overstating the impact of the HIV itself because most of these patients have an undetectable viral load, or all of them have an undetectable viral load. I think there's something here with the antiretrovirals, and then that's a big part of the picture. And I would I would never take a patient off their antiretrovirals for their IVF uh, cycle, but I would be interested in if uh, certain retrovirals have more issues uh, than others because I saw some data was in one but not others, and so that would be another way to slice this pie and look at this study. You've got a new thesis project, Molly. Trash your other one. This is your new one. All right. Well, let's move away from FNS reports and let's talk a little bit about stuff that's going on in the other sister journals. Dylan, tell us a little bit about your article from FNS Science this month. All right. My pleasure, Pietro. I have a story from FNS Science. It's about sperm. You know, I, I don't get into sperm very often, but there were all these views and reviews in the main FNS article, like six of them, all about sperm parameters and AI and a lot, a lot going on there. But yeah, you guys probably know my bias is is that ovarian follicles are the more precious and miraculous of the two branches of gametogenesis. But I must concede that sperm's like under assault, global epidemic and declining sperm quality, roughly half of assisted reproduction cases attributed to male factor. I don't know where they got that number, but that's what I hear. A lot of scary science emerging linking these maladapted clonal spermatogenic events to neurocognitive dysfunction and kids born to older dads. Um, and despite ART being like the, the point of the spear, so to speak, in terms of advanced diagnostic tech and medicine, the methods for semen analysis are still pretty basic. Visual examination of quantity, shape, motility. Um, and in many cases, in some cases, all of the cases, the sperm sperm are manually picked and injected into oocytes. But the question a lot of people have, they ask me, even though I ostensibly know little to nothing about assisted reproduction, they're asking me, what about survival of the fittest? If those sperm are all jacked up, how do you know there won't be some hidden defect that evolution might have weeded out? You guys must have gotten this question a hundred times. What, what's the party line? What do you tell your patients when they say, what about these non-modal sperm? Why are you injecting them? What's, what, what do you tell them? I tell you that we try to inject the modal sperm. Um, number one, if we see good swimming sperm, we catch it, cut its tail off, and then use that guy or gal. But there are situations where we don't have modal sperm or sperm that are twitching, and we pick the one that looks the best and hope it does its job. Yeah, it is a bit of a beauty contest, basically. Well, the sperm selection thing, in my view, is a bit of a problem because, you know, nowadays we want to have all this diagnostic information. And the problem here is you can't observe the sperm at genome scale resolution and also use it 
to inseminate an egg. So what do you do instead? You predict the quality of individual sperm using the whole ejaculate as a proxy, right? Uh, and that's what a, a lot of new methods employ. And it's pretty much like a souped up molecular scale version of viability motility assays of old and of current, sadly, but whatever works, right? In this story that I'm telling today and relaying to you guys, hot off the press at FNS Science from Tim Jenkins, who's at Brigham Young, but also has commercial ties with inherent biosciences. In this story, a group led by Ryan Miller delves into the value of DNA methylation as a predictor of outcomes. They use this retrospective cohort analysis, um, looking at sperm DNA methylation data from 43 fertile donors. So they have this baseline control of 43 fertile donors. And they compare that to data obtained from 1,344 men who were seeking fertility treatment. And based on the variability between these samples, they binned the experimental, those 1,344 men, they binned them into three categories, poor, average, and excellent sperm quality. Then they looked at pregnancy and live birth outcomes across an average of two to three cycles amongst these patients and couples. What they found uh, is that in IUI patients, specifically pregnancy, uh, as well as, as live birth was significantly better, big numbers here, uh, in the excellent group when compared to the poor group. Uh, no info there on the average. They fell right down the middle, as you might expect. And in the IVF ICSI cases, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, there were no differences between groups. So the excellent and the poor looked identical in terms of outcome, right? So on one level, we have another diagnostic tool for the kit, right? Here, there's this panel of 1,233 gene promoters that the authors have identified and that they uh, argue augments the predictive value of semen analysis, specifically in these IUI cases, so a bit limited there. But for me, on, on, a, on a deeper level, it raises some questions. An advocate for ICSI might argue that the vast majority of male factor cases that are solved by ICSI are related to motility. But one implication to this study for me, is that ICSI overcomes epigenetic instability that would otherwise undermine outcome. Um, authors even say it in, in their conclusion, they say the lack of a similar correlation. So looking at uh, the IVF ICSI versus the IUI, the lack of a similar correlation for IVF treatment outcomes is encouraging in that it suggests no loss of fitness due to dysregulated promoters with the assistance of IVF, specifically ICSI. But for me, I mean, it's, it's a bigger question than that. The idea that the outcome differences uh, when you're using ICSI is derived from motility, that here motility really has nothing to do with it. They're showing that there's this differential epigenetic promoter status here that correlates with different outcomes. How is the ICSI overcoming that? And the fact that there's a difference at all, I think, I don't think relays, uh, raises alarm bells, but it certainly raises questions for me. Now, I get it. The genie's way out of the bottle on this to the tune of like maybe a million wishes granted in, in ICSI babies. But the closer you look, as I said, the more questions arise. Do you think, you guys, that stories like this change the way you would communicate with your patients? And I would guess not. Uh, in that case, if not, what do we have to look out for? You know, Not to be alarmist about it, but what would be the canary in the coal mine? And who, who would be the person or the group uh, to sound the alarm? So... Very interesting study. I definitely commend the authors for for doing this study, and I, I I enjoyed reading it. One thing I 
thought about as I read it is, although mechanistically it's a little bit different, but is this going to be the new and upcoming uh, equivalent of DNA fragmentation test? And if so, what do we do with it? You know, we still don't really know entirely of what to do with someone with elevated DNA fragmentation, or do we even test for it? If it's elevated, they don't have a varicocele, do they just take a handful of antioxidants and call it a day? Do you use a Zymot routinely in IVF? Like, what you know, what do you do with it? So Kat's still kind of out of the bag with that, although there's still a lot of mounting data, but is this kind of going to be that next topic? It, certainly, we want to find ways to improve outcomes on our patients, especially with IUI patients as well. And it seems to be almost lopsided in terms of IVF versus IUI studies uh, overall. I mean, there's, of course, a lot of a lot of both, but I feel like a lot of data is driven towards IVF improvement and outcomes there. So what do you do with IUI patients? Maybe this is something we can do to help improve their outcomes. But so so I don't know. I think that there's just a big question mark over this. I think it's it's super interesting, and I hope more studies come from it. But in terms of, to answer your question about counseling patients, I'm at, I don't think I would go there quite yet. Um Hopefully there isn't some kit you buy on Amazon that comes out soon to test for this and people just start doing it. And then you're like, what, what do you want me to do about this? <laughs> so, uh, but very interesting nonetheless, and certainly kind of lays the groundwork for future studies, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, also just to follow up on that, I mean, whether or not this is useful in IUI cases, it may just explain why the outcome isn't positive and that may not have a lot of value to the patient. But I want to circle back to this idea of just like the broader implication. We have such a high threshold of, I think, scrutiny and assurance with the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis of embryos. And I think, of course, that makes a lot of sense. That's the finished product, so to speak. But I mean, by comparison, we're not paying such close attention to the gametes. Do you think that this is something that will change as the technology approaches the degrees of resolution? Like here we are with another assay. There's the ERA, which came and went to a lot of controversy. And I think a lot of people would say shouldn't be used. You know, all these new methods coming out, is it adding another tool to the kit or is it perhaps inviting an opportunity for more confusion and distress for the patients? I don't know that any one of you guys can answer that, but I just wonder with all the tools we have, diagnostics and ART, which ones to choose? I honestly welcome anything that I can find out before an IVF cycle fails. I think the worst consult that we have is everything looks good on your testing. You go through an IVF cycle and then boom, you find out what the issue is. It's fertilization failure. Boom, it's blast development. It's a uh, oocyte quality. If there are diagnostic tests that I can identify who stands to benefit ahead of time before spending the time, money, effort, emotional effort on an IVF cycle that's going to be destined to fail that I could potentially modify, to me, that would be huge. And I don't know that a universal everyone gets this test approach is very nuanced. I think no one else is doing that in other areas of medicine. The cardiologists are way ahead of us in terms of risk stratification and applying the appropriate intervention early and often for people at risk. The oncologists are really good at cascade screening to find at-risk family members. Like We're still pretty crude. We apply kind of the same set of rules to everyone, and there's kind of exceptional circumstances where we go looking for a different diagnostic test, and even then, we're not very good at what to do with it. I'd love to see that paradigm shift, and I'm saying that as a person in a mandated state where patients have access. I can only imagine in a state like Molly's or Blake's where this is a boatload of money that a family's coming up with, and you want that first cycle to go really well. 
Yeah, I think this test isn't going to answer that question because it looks like all these patients did similarly when, when you got to IVF, but it may help in terms of how many IUIs are you going to do first? How quickly will you move towards IVF? And it does help answer that question of, okay, when the sperm looks fine, what's actually going on? And I think we all know that we need more information about sperm than what we're getting from our semen analysis. So if I'm seeing that these epigenetic changes that are occurring during spermatogenesis are leading to lower natural fertility rates, then that's going to be uh, relevant to me. So it's giving me another piece of the puzzle. Enough of this science. Let's consider some stuff that's not in the reports, reviews, and science family of journals. Molly, tell us a little bit about what you got from Consider This. Great. Thanks, Pietro. So the Consider This piece I chose for today is called Viewpoints on Embryo Cryopreservation and Disposition After the Overturn of Roe v. Wade, an Amazon Mechanical Turk-based survey by first author Zachary Walker and last author Serene Sruji, all at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. So before we dive in, I have to get a question out of the way that probably many of you are stuck on. The first thing I thought when I saw this article was what in the world is an Amazon Mechanical Turk? Seems like short for that is MTurk-based survey. So it looks like it's an online service that quickly distributes and receives responses from paid respondents. And so anyone who's done survey research, we've all had the struggle of trying to get an adequate response rate, really hoping you can get that 50 or 60% survey response rate, and it can take weeks to get all your responses. It looks like using this mTurk system, the authors actually got a really high response rate and got their data really fast. So they reported a 100% response rate, 90% completion rate. Pietro has a hand up. What's up, Pietro? And this is because you're paying people just to kind of yes. understand how the process works is you come up with a survey, you post it on this forum and you say, I will pay everyone 10 cents to take this 10 minute survey. A bunch of people show up, take your survey, you pay them their 10 cents, and you have your responses collected within 24 hours. It's a convenience sampling of people, but a lot of concerns about does this reflect the real world? And are you getting good and accurate information when people are incentivized solely to be on this platform and take surveys? They did meet their, they had to close the survey in two days. So uh, people responding with alacrity, but I would I would disagree with you there. I mean, if 10 cents, if that is what motivates you to take part in a survey, maybe you should get out there and donate your sperm or something. Uh, yeah. The other thing I will say is that they, they looked into it to see if anybody was auto gaming it with some bots, found that they only had to exclude like 10 people who were trying to get like a total of $5 as opposed to the 50 cent one off. So yeah, they had countermeasures, Pietro. This isn't their first rodeo. Yeah, so definite risk for bias, and I'll bounce back to that near the end, but it does seem like a way to get a lot of survey responses fast while accepting all that bias. So looks like it's mostly been used in the business world, but may have some promise to help us collect data in terms of convenience sample in healthcare as well. Back to the article. So the authors start by describing the threat that abortion restriction bills may pose to IVF and practices, including discarding embryos and embryo cryopreservation. And the authors were really interested in the views of general American public regarding disposition of cryopreserved embryos and comparing specifically individuals who support legalizing abortion to those who support abortion restrictions and seeing whether views differ between those populations. 
So for this survey, they had over 500 participants that met inclusion criteria. Three-fourths of them thought that abortion should be legal always or most of the time, and about one-fourth thought abortion should be significantly restricted. And as we expected, the demographics were pretty skewed for the population. 88.5% were white. Based on U.S. Census data, the population is more like 75% in the U.S. that identifies as white. And 75% were married, which is also considerably higher than the national average, which actually comes in a little under 50 percent based on what I found. So perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not, respondents who wanted to restrict abortion were more likely to be white, straight, and identify as Christian, and less likely to have used contraception, which was really interesting. And we're also more likely to consider an embryo a life, but I will circle back to that point because there were some surprising findings there as well. So far, all of that kind of checks out. We're all nodding our head in the background and like, yep, that sounds about right. Yep, not, not surprising there, but yes, carry on. Yep. Uh, the majority of both groups actually supported embryo cryopreservation for PGTA, PGTM, fertility preservation, or use of with a gestational carrier. And the majority of both study groups, uh, both those that wanted to legalize abortion and restrict abortion, supported allowing an individual or a couple to dispose of embryos how they choose. It was higher in the group that supported legalizing abortion at 89%, which we would expect. But in the population that wanted to restrict abortion, it was actually still 75%. And both of those numbers were higher than I expected. Other cool findings of the study, definitely check it out on the Fertility and Sterility website. But my big takeaways, so definitely a skewed population. And I speculate there are additional biases as well that we might not see in the data among people who are responding to these MTurk surveys. But we did see a majority of respondents support legalizing abortion, which is consistent with other surveys of the American population, and actually really did support most uses of cryopreserved embryos. And a high proportion actually supported donating embryos to research. So there are some interesting ways that this survey of the general American population may differ from prior surveys of people that were specifically undergoing IVF. And the authors also talked more about that, which I thought was interesting. What I thought was really most interesting is that uh, when I look at the tables, there was a really high proportion of people who responded yes to statements, an embryo is a person, an embryo is a life, and an embryo is alive. And that was in both groups, those supporting legalizing abortion or restricting abortion. And it was actually about half or more in all of those groups. That gave me a lot of perspective on the language that we're using in our clinics, as well as in our legislature. And I know that as an REI, I've been really concerned about the potential for personhood bills to pass that would restrict my patient's options for their embryo disposition. What is really interesting here is that a group of people for whom the majority are comfortable with most embryo disposition, vast majority, a significant proportion also did think of embryos as a life. And so even if they may agree with the title of a personhood bill or the title of this legislation, they may not actually agree with the actual restrictions in the legislation itself. So that was really eye-opening. It may change the way I approach advocacy efforts, knowing that a majority of individuals actually do assign terms like life or person to an embryo in the general population, but also do not want restrictions on embryo disposition. So that was a lot, but what do you guys think? Were you surprised by some of the findings in the survey? And would this change anything in how you're talking to patients or approaching your advocacy efforts? A lot of this is kind of exactly why going to court with a malpractice trial is so hard, is you're having to teach people about something pretty complex with a very short amount of time and a very short attention span. And Think about how complex some of IVF consults can be about fresh versus frozen, genetically tested, untested, implantation failure, 
That stuff's tricky and that stuff's hard and requires, I think, some baseline knowledge about reproduction, but you're filling in a lot of gaps. I'm not surprised that people ascribe terms to these embryos that feel like people, but then really want you to allow you to not treat it like people and treat it like material or property that's able to be disposed, discarded, tested, not tested. The stuff is tricky. And I think if we had an opportunity to teach people a little bit more about human reproduction and kind of just some of the fundamentals where this is an eight cell organism that can't survive outside of the incubator of the body. It's not a life. I think people would have an opportunity to change hearts and minds, but I think a lot of it's on us to evangelize beyond this podcast, beyond this audience that's kind of already attuned to some of these things. I mean, this article is, uh, you know, is interesting, but, um, you know, I, I personally, since Roe versus Wade has been overturned, especially being a physician in Oklahoma, being an REI in Oklahoma, my efforts to be a part of advocacy have certainly escalated. And, you know, a part of uh, Doctors for Fertility, the Political Action Committee, which if you guys haven't heard about that or are not a member, check it out. It's an excellent organization. But I also spend a, a few minutes of every IVF consult to I have that IVF attrition pyramid that Max Izadi has, where it starts with follicles at the bottom and a baby at the top. And I set expectations and say, you know, when we do IVF, we want to get all these follicles and stimulate them because very few of them will ultimately become a baby. And then I'll go through each step. And then I point out where it says oocytes, mature oocytes and fertilized oocytes. And I say, and right here, this is not a person despite what, you know, so then I kind of go into a little soapbox there. And I use that as a moment to educate patients as well, especially again, being from a state such as Oklahoma, where people are very one track minded in politics and don't think outside of the box. But now all of a sudden, when they're going in fertility treatments and IVF, it's a different ballgame. And I want them to understand that too. So it's really interesting now that I'm incorporating this into all of my counseling, you really see their gears turning when they say this is not a person. It can be maybe one day, but if every fertilized egg was a person, this would be a very simple conversation. And I would say, how many kids do you want? All right, cool. We'll fertilize that many. But so when you point it out that way, or if it's a patient with RPL and they've had four or five losses, and I say, if every fertilized egg was a person, how many kids would you have? You know, and they're like, oh, okay. So I pointed out that way. So I think just all of us doing our part and doing things such as that, advocacy and everything we can are extremely helpful. Articles such as this are helpful too. So uh, we could spend a whole podcast talking about this as well. This is a big topic of contention for sure. I mean, that's a great article. I really encourage everyone to check out the Consider This website, read not only that article, but just a bunch of other really awesome ones that are off the beaten path, don't fit to the mold of a nice um, research article, but are worth discussing and talking about and having the conversation. We're going to end off with a special guest on the podcast today. It's not all the time that we get drop in by one of our editors-in-chief but today we have Dr. Ann Steiner, Editor-in-Chief of FNS Reviews, here to talk with Blake about FNS Reviews broadly, but also tell us a little bit about an article that they found interesting and wanted to discuss. Thanks, Pietro. So as he said, very excited to have Dr. Steiner here with us today. Quite an honor. And so we're just going to briefly talk about a little article that she had recently published in FNS Reviews. And so it's entitled From the Editor's Corner and gives a brief update about the status of the journal. And I'd planned to summarize this article myself, but then I thought, who better to actually hear it from than the editor-in-chief, Dr. Steiner? So, Anne, why don't you tell us a little bit about this article? Yeah, the goal of this article, or just maybe a little commentary, was to just 
let everybody know what's going on with FNS Reviews to remind everyone as to our goal and purpose and our vision, which is really to be a resource for you, the reader, on topics important in reproductive medicine and reproductive science, and to really provide you some interesting novel insights into topics we're discussing these days. So it's just trying to, first of all, remind you about us being out there and uh, give you a little bit of update about the journal. Excellent. And so for the REI fellows out there, or even residents interested in REI, this sounds like a pretty great opportunity for them to get some publications under their belt as well. Would you agree? Yeah, it is. So it's an excellent opportunity. Most of you are thinking about or hopefully working on your thesis. And all that work you're doing, you're having to do a background literature search, all that work you're having to do, why don't you get a publication out of it in addition to your thesis publication? So in the article, we do kind of detail what we ask you to do or kind of what we're looking for. But if you have an idea, and like I said, I would use the background work for your thesis, go ahead and put a little proposal together and send it to FertStert at ASRM.org. And we'll basically provide you a little feedback and let you know if we're interested in it. And then you're on your way to writing a great review article. Excellent. And so just kind of tell us, how does the submission process work? So you mentioned in your commentary, there's a pre-submission process. It goes through all of the, the editors. Tell us about that. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you submit that proposal and you can see on our website how to draft the proposal. But, you know, it's pretty obvious things we'd want to know, like who are the authors going to be? What's the title? What's kind of the purpose? What kind of, you know, maybe tell us some articles that you're going to include. There's different ways to write it if you're going to do a systematic review or a narrative review. But you can find that on our website. As I mentioned, you'll send it to us on the website, tells exactly the email address to send it to. It's reviewed and we're going to just there to give you feedback about whether or not it's worthwhile for you to move forward with writing up the whole review. So assuming we'll come back to you saying, yes, we like it. And hey, here are some other ideas that you may want to incorporate. You hadn't thought about this. You may want to do this. In general, it's meant to be constructive feedback to try to help you really have the best paper in the end. Um, and then you'll submit it through the traditional means through our uh, website. We work with Elsevier, just like when you submit to FNS, FNS Science or FNS Reports, we have a similar platform to which you'll submit the article, which subsequently will be fully reviewed and et cetera, et cetera, just like any other paper is reviewed and published. Wonderful. And then lastly, there's also a unique opportunity that FNS Reviews has in which a trainee can apply to be an intern. Is that correct? Or tell us what is what does that entail? Yeah. So we are looking for FNS Reviews intern. We're very excited about this. I'm saying this. We, I'm including on uh, Dr. Evans and, and this statement, um, we really want to get somebody who wants to see how the sausage is made, right? Isn't that how they used to describe about how laws come into being? But this is how, how does a journal, a scientific journal like this run? What happens after the paper comes in? Now, how to do a review. You may already know about how to do a review, but okay, next step. If you're not, you know, how to review an article, the next thing is how do the editors make decisions about what to accept and not accept? How do we work with the publisher? What goes on in the media? 
How does this podcast happen? So what we really are excited about is having an intern come and work with us and really get involved with us, participate in our meetings, um, maybe do some reviews of articles, work with the editorial staff, um, meet our publisher, et cetera, et cetera. We're really excited about this opportunity. I think it's going to be lots of fun. So you'll see we have an application process which basically involves sending us a brief statement as to why you want to be an intern and sending us your CV. Sounds like a great opportunity. So as I'm uh, listening to you talk about this, Pietro, I'll put out a little plug on our FNS social media accounts as well and kind of advertise that. So, well, Dr. Steiner, thank you so much for joining us today, Editor-in-Chief of FNS Reviews. It's been wonderful having you join us. And thank you all very much for listening. Till we meet again. Bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.